Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, actor Laura Prepon. Laura's big break was playing Donna on That 70s Show. She starred in Orange is the New Black, and she has a brand new book out just in time for Mother's Day called You and I as Mothers, a feel-good, live-well, stay-connected guide for moms. Now, Laura has a new baby and a toddler, but we're going to talk a lot about her mom, who was obsessed with cooking and sometimes called her kids down to dinner in the middle of the night. Often we would wake up around midnight or one in the morning and we would stumble into the kitchen, blurry eyed, and she would have this beautiful spread out for us. And in honor of Laura's role in the TV show, Orange is the New Black, I revisit my 2016 interview with the late rapper Prodigy, who wrote a cookbook featuring recipes that he learned to make while he was in prison. We would definitely still like little packets of salt and pepper and butters from the chow. And um, we would use it when we actually make, had time to make our own food. But first, my conversation with Laura Prepon. Let's start where it always has to start with childhood. I understand uh, that you had the life that people dream of. No rules, wild childhood. <laughs> Yes, my siblings and I often refer to it as Wild Kingdom. Our mother was just very unconventional and eccentric. So we definitely had a very interesting upbringing, especially when it came to food, because she was this very eccentric gourmet chef and would make all sorts of things till the wee hours of the morning, like Peking duck and her own sushi and perfecting cooking frog gras. You know, I remember when she was in her phase of... um caviar we lived in jersey so she would drive into this really high-end russian deli called petrosian i don't even know if it's still there and she would get caviar beluga and savruga and bring it back to jersey and make these homemade blinis and do this whole caviar thing i was like nine years old at the time so it was kind of lost on me but uh, i wish i was a little older when she was going through those because i totally didn't get the art of when she was totally into sushi and would get all of her own fresh fish from like a sushi market that was an hour and a half away that she would drive to to get her fresh fish every day. But I was so young. I was like eight, nine years old when she was in those phases. And then as I got older, she would go into other phases that I could understand. This was in the 80s and the early 90s. Before the Food Network, when making sushi or peking duck at home was very exotic. She would stay up all hours of the night and you didn't have a bedtime. So you guys would eat sometimes really late, right? Yes, yeah, so we would go to sleep for school, um, you know, around 10 o'clock or whatever. And then we would often we would wake up around midnight or one in the morning and we would all, you know, stumble into the kitchen, blurry eyed. And she would have this beautiful spread out for us. She would basically make three meals. She would make dinner for us, which she would put in these casserole dishes on hot trays. And she would make like a little buffet for the kids with amazing food. And then she would make something separate for my father. He was like a steak and potatoes kind of guy. So if it was something with fish or whatever, he wouldn't want it. So then she would make him want his dinner if he didn't like what the children were eating, even though it was like amazing, like chicken cordon bleu from scratch. Everything was from scratch always. She never, like never in my life has she dumped out a box of mac and cheese and made it for kids. That's not her thing. 
And then she would go into her Peking duck or sushi or foie gras or souffle or whatever thing that she was perfecting after that until the wee hours of the morning. And sometimes I'd leave for school and she'd still be in the kitchen in the morning and then she would sleep during the day. Laura is the youngest of five children. And when she was 15 years old, her sister Stephanie worked at a magazine in New York. She suggested that tall, pretty Laura try out modeling. So not something that I wanted to do, only because it never crossed my mind. I was going to, you know, my whole thing was I'm going to be a doctor like my father. He was a very successful surgeon. I'd always been fascinated with, you know, the body and how it works and health and wellness and everything like that since I was a kid. When she mentioned that, it was like hearing a foreign language But I'm always down to experience it and try it. So I'm like, sure, why not? And my mother drove me into this open casting in New York to this modeling agency when I was 15. And they told me to lose 25 pounds. And if I did, that they would sign me. So I lost 25 pounds in two months. And they signed her. Laura said it's easier to break into modeling and make a portfolio if you're in Europe. So at 15 years old, she moved to Milan all by herself and lived in a flat with other models. So my mom said, go. I packed my bags and I got on a plane and I moved to Milan when I was 15. And I lived there for about a year. And I lived in Paris and London. I did a little stint in Brazil. And then um, my first commercial I ever got was in Milan. It was an Italian Uncle Ben's Rice commercial. No way. Yeah. Paris, Welthauptstadt für Mode und Trends. Die neue Respinos Sommerkollektion von Uncle Ben's. And then called my mother in Jersey and I said, I want to try this acting thing. And she said, well, what do you need to do? And I said, I need to learn how to act. So she's like, okay, great, let's do it. So then I came home from Italy and then I started acting. And then within a year, I booked that 70s show and I moved to Los Angeles. And that's all kind of history after that. Laura mentioned earlier that she had to lose 25 pounds to be accepted into the modeling agency. And her mom got very involved in helping her do that. In her book, she reveals that her mother, a woman who is obsessed with cooking delicious food, taught her how to be bulimic. It's, I get it's complicated. By the way, when I lost those 25 pounds, that was not because of the eating disorder. That was because of hard work. My mother would cook my food and weigh it out and portion it out and and batch cook all of my meals for me. Put myself on a workout regimen. I ate only what she put in in my little containers for me. Like she would weigh and measure me every day. Like we had a full blow. It was like a, a training camp. It became this thing we did together. And she's not a maternal person. So for me to have this bonding experience with her was really, really special. While I was modeling and I dropped down to 105 pounds, not from the eating disorder. That was from me just eating the right way and working out a lot. But I tend to be an extremist and I kind of took it to extreme. And yes, I dropped down to 105 pounds and was a size zero at 5'10". And it was too hard for me to keep that weight off because my body, like my period was gone. I didn't get my period for like a year. When it became really, really hard to keep my weight down, that's when she taught me, you know, how to be a bulimic and how to do it correctly, you know, different tricks to do so that people won't know that I'm doing it, how to make it easier, specific foods to eat. It was like a whole learning thing. And I resisted it at first, but then it became this kind of shared 
secret that she and I had and we would do it together and it was how we would bond. We would hang out and eat together and talk and and then go to our separate bathrooms, you know. It was like a bonding thing we did and I I craved it. I craved this time with her because I love her. She's my mother. And then unfortunately, it took me years to get out of it. It's interesting because I don't blame her. Like I know that she equates being thin with success. That's just how her mind works. So I know that she was teaching me this as a way to be successful. But yes, as a mother now, I look back and I'm like, how the hell did you teach me that? Like, it's so damaging. And it took me years to unravel that. But again, like there's days where I, I, I struggle with how did you teach me that? And then there's other days where I, kn- I wouldn't be where I am without her teaching me to not conform to a status quo and without her teaching me to speak up for myself and really be who I am, you know, and not try to conform to some preconceived idea. That was all stuff that I learned from her. So it's a really interesting relationship. I write all about it in my book um, because I feel like we can all relate in some way to how we were mothered. It affects us, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, You can't get the mom out of you. No, you can't. You can't. Whether you have a relationship or not, it affects you. You know what I'm saying? And there's a lot of therapy you have to do to kind of ease that up a little bit. Tell me about it. Happy Mother's Day. Unravel those mom issues with your therapist and then pick up some flowers for her this weekend. Your mom, not the therapist. Even though, I don't know, we should probably all give our therapist flowers. That would probably be nice too. It is time to take a quick break, but when we return, Laura Prepon reveals her last meal. what would your last meal be? (laughs) My last meal, that's always such a tough question. You know, I think it would probably have to be mussels, like a bouillabaisse, like the, you know, the mussels in like the beautiful tomato-y broth. Yes. That with some fresh bread, fresh toasted bread with butter. uh, It's probably that. Like when you get the grilled bread, that is the best, like the smoky grill marks on it. (laughs) Yes, that is what I'm saying. That is what would be my last meal. I absolutely love that. And if that's on the menu, I get it. I, I just, I get it. I order it. I have to. I just love that. Also, because growing up, my family has property in Maine and right on the water and you could go muscling on our property and get fresh mussels. And my mother would make a bouillabaisse that was just, I'm not kidding. Like you feel like you're eating at French laundry. Like it, it's just incredible. And then there's this restaurant in Budapest that is a really amazing one. And I, I was asking my husband too, we cannot remember the name of it. Also because we have a newborn and we're totally sleep deprived right now. But that would probably be my last meal because I just love that meal so much. And I have a lot of fond memories around it. Laura Prepon wants mussels for her last meal, preferably in a bouillabaisse, which is a very hard word to spell. And she might even like the version that she had in a nameless restaurant in Budapest. Bouillabaisse is a classic French stew from, is that Marseille? M-A-R-S-E. Okay. Okay. I don't know Frenchy stuff good. I don't know Frenchy stuff real good. (laughs) 
Bouillabaisse is a classic French fish stew from Marseille that was originally created by fishermen to use up the bony rockfish that they couldn't sell in the markets. The broth has tomatoes and garlic, onions, fennel and herbs, and spices like saffron, thyme, and bay. It's traditionally made with two kinds of fish, something white and firm, and then a shellfish like clams or mussels. And if you like mussels and you've never cooked them before, you should. They are so affordable and so easy to cook and super versatile. I really like to do a Thai version of mussels where you saute some garlic and ginger and onions, and then you just throw in coconut milk, curry paste, lemongrass, and you just wait for them to open right up. It takes like eight minutes and the dish is done. Or you can go with a French mussel dish and throw them in a pot once again with garlic and onions and fennel, throw in some white wine and herbs, and then the same thing. They just pop right open in 10 minutes. And when the mussels open, just like clams and other bivalves, they release their briny juices into the sauce. And that's what you get to sop up with the nice crusty bread. Right. Really easy to cook with. So do you ever make it at home? You know, I don't really because I've basically been like pregnant for the last <laughs> like my daughter is only two and a half years old. I was pregnant again after that, which was a pregnancy that we lost. And then I just had another baby. So I've been so pregnant or breastfeeding for the last three years. I don't eat mussels when I'm pregnant or when I'm breastfeeding. And then the little time that I had in between the times of being pregnant, I, I didn't make it actually. I didn't, which is, I should, I should though. So obviously you were on Orange is the New Black. And one of the things that I was fascinated with when I read the book originally was all of the different hacks that they did in prison for making meals, like using coffee creamer and sugar packets and things like that to make a cheesecake for someone's birthday. Yeah, yeah. Did you learn any of those things by being on the show? <laughs> the only thing I really remember from Orange is the New Black that we would take Kool-Aid packets and, you know, they would make blush out of them and like rouge and lipstick out of the Kool-Aid packets. But I don't remember specifically because a lot of the scenes that they would do in the kitchen, it was usually like Red and Gloria and, you know, like Nikki and Lorna. My character was never really in the kitchen scenes. We would just have to eat this horrible food but the trick was whenever we had to do eating scenes, we had a little trick and all the girls caught onto it and we were all just eating oranges. So they would give us oranges and we would just, to make it look like we were chewing, we would always just chew oranges. So we didn't have to eat any of the other terrible food. So that was our trick. And that was our trick. It's so on the nose to give you oranges. I know. Seriously. Laura played Alex on Orange is the New Black, an inmate in federal prison. And like you just heard her say, even the food she had to eat while filming a TV show was bad. So you can only imagine how bad actual prison food is. In December 2016, I had the rapper Prodigy on Your Last Meal. He had just written a book called Commissary Kitchen, my infamous prison cookbook, featuring recipes that he made while incarcerated in various New York state jails. Prodigy was born with sickle cell anemia, a hereditary blood disorder. And he said that eating lots of green vegetables kept him from feeling pain and getting sick. But as you can imagine, the food in prison is not very healthy. He said they only served maybe a vegetable a week. It was always green beans. But luckily at the prison he was at, they allowed people to mail in packages of food and he was shipped cases and cases of canned vegetables. Sadly, about a year and a half after our interview in 2017, Prodigy passed away from complications from sickle cell anemia. So here's a portion of our interview talking about what he cooked and ate 
during the time he spent behind bars. Is the bad food enough to make you behave yourself so you never go back again? Oh, for sure. Definitely. 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 <laughs> I'll never want to see that food ever again, yo. Ever again. Prodigy said they weren't limited to eating at mealtimes. You could buy food in the commissary kitchen. You could have food shipped to you from the outside. And inmates would pocket things like butter packets and creamer and little salt and pepper packets from the cafeteria, which he called the chow. But I wasn't in prison, so I feel like it's like a little bit inside for me to call it the chow, too. <laughs> Every day, they would get a few hours out of their cells to watch TV or play cards, use the phone, or to cook. During those times, you know, me and the guys that I hung out with, we would always cook. Cause we were working out a lot, and when you work, when you're on a real workout regimen, you have to eat. So that's what we would do. That was our thing: work out, eat good, uh, drink a lot of water. And you know, I went in with this plan to better myself and improve myself. Like, and it worked out for me. But I learned that a lot of inmates, you know, they don't have family and they don't have money, you know, to afford food on commissary. So you know, they were forced to eat the prison chow every day, and that's the only thing they had to eat. And um, it's disgusting, man. You hear horror stories about people finding things in food. I had no idea that you could cook your own meals in prison. I didn't know that this existed. Uh, all that he had was a toaster and a microwave, but he had to share it with 50 other inmates. So he and his little buddies, that's what they like to be called in prison. I'm, I'm safe out here. No one can beat me up. He and his little buddies in prison, they would cook together. You know, there's a lot of tension. Like everybody's upset that they're in prison and you know, they got attitudes. So when it comes time to cooking, you know, you know, usually, you know, people share the food. Like like I might throw in the rice, you throw in the salmon, somebody else will throw in the beans, and then we'll make the food and then we'll all eat together. Whoever chipped in, you know what I mean? And sometimes we might share it with somebody if we feel like, you know, being nice or whatever. But the cooking, it takes like an hour or two to prepare a meal, you know what I mean, to sit down and eat. It takes your mind off of where you're at for a little while, you know? Because you're sitting there preparing your meal and it's almost kind of peaceful, you know, for the moment. You know, you forget where you at for a little while and you get to, you know, talk to the other inmates and it just helps bring people together and it calms a lot of the tension. So it's a good thing. What is a recipe that you were really surprised that you could make in prison? I mean, I've heard about, you know, using like the little cream packets to make a cheesecake. What is something that you, you made out of nothing? Definitely probably like the, the pot stickers, the dumplings. That is a weird recipe. Can you talk more about that? What do you use to make the dumpling skin? Uh, it was two different ways we would do it. We would take, like, the pasta. We would get, like, spaghetti or elbow noodles, and you boil it. You know, you get it soft, and then you just mush it together like dough, and then you just make it into a shape, you know what I mean, of a dumpling, you, and you could fill it with, like, chicken or tuna or whatever, and then close it up and then put it in the toaster oven, you know what I mean? And you got dumplings. <laughs> We used to do the same thing with bread. Like if you take a loaf of bread and you, you put some water on it and you just turn it into dough, soft dough, and just make the dumplings out of the, the dough. You know what I mean? Did you just uh, kind of sit around all day thinking like, what can I make? Were you getting all like Food Network chopped in your brain? <laughs> yeah, we were definitely like experimenting, trying new things. We made that honey, that honey glazed chicken. That was like an experiment one day. Me and the homies was in there just trying different things. So that came out pretty good. We just put mad honey on the fried chicken and threw it in the toaster oven, and it was like something new. We was like, wow, this is good. All right, I want to talk about the meal that you think is the most disgusting, which is something that I actually made. There's some cookbook that somebody gave me. Uh, we call it prison, just prison cuisine, and that is yeah. the prison surprise. Um, right. 
Can you talk about what's in Present Surprise? Because I made this and I ate this and I thought it was disgusting. And then I was strangely kind of into it because of the MSG. I think it's like a little weirdly addictive. That's like a Rikers Island. That's big on Rikers Island, man. Because that's where I first had it. That's basically ramen noodles with uh, really finely crushed up Doritos, like almost like a powder. You crush the Doritos and uh, you also use Jack Mac, which is mackerel, mackerel fish. Yeah, the, the Doritos is like a cheese sauce. Once you add the hot water to the crushed up Doritos, it becomes like a cheese sauce on the noodles and fish. And they just mix it up, and that's it. Prison surprise. <laughs> you know what I mean? What does it taste like? Ah, oh, man, it tastes like cheesy noodles with fish in it. I love how at the end you just say, good luck, yo, at the end of the <laughs> recipe. <laughs> yeah, I got, yo, my first day at Rikers Island, I had that. Somebody made it for me, and they showed me how to make it. And, um... Yeah, I actually like got sick. I got food poisoning from it. I think the fish was bad or something like that. And I started like throwing up and sweating bullets. They had to send me to the infirmary. So I had a bad experience with that. My first day in jail. Ugh. Yes, it sounds disgusting. It looks disgusting. It smells disgusting. It's salty as hell and very addictive. I could not stop eating it. It was the most delicious, disgusting thing I may have ever put into my mouth. Have you made any of these recipes since you've been out? <laughs> Yeah, I definitely, I definitely have. I make a lot of the salmon. I make a lot of the macaroni salad with apples. I make a lot of the, um, the salmon spaghetti, the rasta pasta. What does your family think about you making prison food at home? Oh man, they love it because you know I, the book is the ingredients that were available to us in the prison. So what I do is I just take the same recipes and I use fresh food. I go to the fresh fish market and get fresh slices of salmon. You know what I mean? I, I use better ingredients. Instead of a lot of butter, I'll use some olive oil. And um, I'll just use the same recipes with fresh food. You know what I mean? It tastes great. It tastes like real restaurant-style home cooking. My quarantine friends, if you are looking for more podcasts to listen to, I encourage you to go way back and listen to this Prodigy episode in full from December 2016. I also interviewed Brian Price, who is a former Texas inmate. He cooked 218 last meals for people on death row between 1991 and 2001. Brian is an amazing storyteller, and his story goes way beyond food. All right, time to take a break. But when we come back, Laura talks about meatloaf. Now, you might be wondering, are we talking about meatloaf the food, or are we talking about meatloaf the man? The only way to find out is to stick around. read something deep in the internet that says that you go back to New Jersey every year for Thanksgiving and that your family has a tradition that you sing a particular song together every year. <laughs> not okay. Not only is it Thanksgiving, it's at every wedding. You have to sing it like a really big family event where we're all there. Cause we're, we're a big Irish Catholic, you know, family. We're also, we're half Irish Catholic, half Russian Jewish, but, and when we're all together, you know, we're having drinks. <laughs> it always ends up that we're, we end up singing Meatloaf. It's our family anthem. Which song? Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I don't know how that goes. I don't want to put you on the spot, but like, could you sing a little baby part of it? Okay, so it's, um, I remember every little thing as if it happened only yesterday. And then um, something, 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 and not another car inside. And then it's like, ooh, shop, 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 shop. And it's like... And then he says, and I never met a girl looking any better than you did. 
and all the kids at school, they were wishing they were me that night. I, I mean, I can literally, I, I mean, I know the beginning was a little iffy for me, but then I can, the rest of it, I know pretty well. So is this something that just comes up naturally every time you're all together, like someone will kick it off or is it organized? Fully. fully. No, someone random will just kick it off. I mean, we go so far as at a family wedding, there's a woman that sings with meatloaf. She is wonderful. You know, the whole thing is about him getting laid. So he's basically telling her, I love you so that he can sleep with her. And then she's like, if we sleep together, will you love me forever? You know what I mean? So she has this whole part where she's singing. So all the girls line up, all the guys line up and we sing it to each other like a show. It's amazing. I want to be in your family. It sounds so no, fun. It's, oh my gosh. It's so much fun. It's like, has it's this a been, big deal. Has this been since you were a kid? Oh yeah, fully. I remember when my sister married a guy from Germany and his family was visiting and this broke out one night where it was like the girls line up, the guys line up, we all sang and, and my cousins get like really into it. <laughs> And his family, who's, they're pretty conservative, didn't know if they were seriously fighting or yelling at each other because they get so into the different parts. Oh, it was so funny. We just tend to take the piss out of stuff and just have a good time. All right. So here's a fun fact. Meatloaf is now a vegan. And here's an interview he did with Oprah. Where are they now? About how he got his name. Okay. I got it when I was four days old. Not the loaf part, just the meat, because I was born bright red. So the doctor suggested that they should keep me in the hospital for a few days. And my dad actually spoke like this. So uh, I want you to name my son there, because he looks like nine and a half pounds of ground chuck. I I I want you to put a name tag on the front of that plastic crib and say meat on it. They stuck that printed card said meat and that was it and the loaf came about in the eighth grade i stepped on a coach's foot and he screamed get off my foot you hunk of meatloaf and that was laura prepon's last meal she is such a genuine down-to-earth person i absolutely love talking to her make sure and order her book it's called you and i as mothers a feel-good live well stay connected guide for moms just in time for Mother's Day weekend. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, recorded with Aaron Mason, and theme music by Prom Queen. I encourage you to go to doomwop.com, it's D-O-O-M-W-O-P, W-O-P, to buy her music and support an artist who can't work right now. And while I'm bossing you around, please follow along on Instagram, Your Last Meal Podcast. I've been doing something called the Quarantine Cooking Club. Every week, we all cook a dish together. It's always one of the last meals from a past guest. On Tuesdays, we vote in my Instagram stories. And on Thursdays, I announce the winner. You can use any recipe, make any version of the dish you want, and then post your pictures to Instagram and tag me in them. You can find more on my Instagram page. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Have you heard that Harris Whittles joke about Laura Prepon? No. Harris Whittles, genius comedy writer. He's no longer with us. But he wrote, Did you guys hear about that new deal that you can go in on with a cast member from that 70s show and you get a discount on mustard and or salad toppings? 
It's a Laura Prepon Grey Poupon Crouton Groupon. <laughs> I love a little wordplay. <laughs> and every time I hear her name, I think of Grey Poupon. Oh, my brain is so tired. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So here's a fun fact. Meatloaf is now a vegan. Hmm. Isn't that ironic? Don't you think? Please don't put that in. It's real dumb. A little too ironic. Real dumb, yeah. It's like flies in your Chardonnay. She's a Jersey girl, by the way, just like you. Yeah. You're a Jersey girl. I'm a Jersey girl. You're a Jersey girl.